So we wrote this book, Thad Heckman and myself, A Full History of the Buckminster Fuller Dome Home here in Carbondale. And it came out last year. COVID kind of delayed the book signing. We're doing this coming Saturday, Barnes & Noble, August 14th. Uh, They were kind enough to reschedule. We think the book is still uh, ready to get in people's hands. We're ready to sign it. All the proceeds from the book. I'm not making a dime. Thad's not making a dime. It's all going back to the dome home. And Thad has been the official uh, architect for the home throughout the restoration for many, many years. I'm kind of a newcomer to the whole project. I was brought on originally just to Arthur this book or mm-hmm. co-author this book and now I'm part of the Bucky board as we like to call it because the, the home is coming has made leaps and bounds but we're still um, we still have stuff to do inside and a lot of outside as far as the fountain the fullers had a fountain out the front of the home this large fence we want to make it look as much as it like it did when the fullers lived there back in the 1960s well and i mean that that restoration process yeah, yeah. the accuracy of that yeah. i remember john davies saying that there's only like one thing and it was like the some sort of tape seam or something to that effect that that was that was a waiver was sought for in terms of historical accuracy related to yeah. um, you know the the historical uh, registry uh, listing. So the, that, I mean that's that's pretty impressive in terms yeah. of how close the to plan the plan is to the the goal is to take it back to how it was first built in 1960 uh, as it is today. Some changes are made. It's more uh, fuel efficient, for example, with power. It has uh, fire. Um, um, smoke detectors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Some things are allowed to be updated, but yeah. we want to keep it back and make it as much as like it was when the Fullers lived there. They moved in in 1960. They lived there till about 1970. It was their legal address till 1972, and that's what we're going back to. So the um, now I'm sure Fad told me yes. how you got suckered into <laughs> uh, the whole project. But tell me again how you got well, suckered into the whole project. This is the funny thing. I'm an SIU grad. Uh-huh. I was here from 1988 to 1992. Mm-hmm. I knew during that time that Bucky had taught at SIU. Uh, but I never gave any thought about where Bucky might have lived. And I never knew that there was a dome home here in Carbondale. But when I was here at that time, the home was still in private hands. It was owned by a man by Mike, named Mike Mitchell. It was a rental property. Mm-hmm. I lived over on Hester Street, as I mentioned, behind the rec center. I was never in that on Forest Avenue that I recall. And if I was, if I wasn't specifically looking for a dome yeah. home, I, I wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. So I didn't know until years later, I read something about this dome home in Carbondale being restored. And I called my brother, Lesserdale, who's lived in Carbondale, his entire adult life, basically. I said, where is this thing? And then I assumed, I assumed, oh, it must be out in the country someplace, uh-huh. you know, out in the edge of town. No, it's right there in like this normal neighborhood, <laughs> you know. And so I was here visiting my brother and his family, and we were out and driving around. I said, let's tell, drive me by the Bucky Dome. Yeah. And he did. I was like, that's it. So sometime later, I was coming back to Carbondale. I have a lot of ties here to Carbondale. And um, I asked to have a tour of it. And that's when I first met Thad Heckman. And at that time, that's when the overdome was over the home, protecting it. Mm-hmm. The part of the seat roof had caved in. There was a big pole in the living room holding the roof up. Mm-hmm. This was, does not wow, look story, like that. The storied pole. Yes, There's yes. There's been multiple mentions so far on the podcast of the story. Constantly, pole. don't hit your head on that, you know. <laughs> but even in that sort of condition, it was still very impressive to me. And what what struck me so much is how spacious it felt inside. Standing outside, it doesn't look like a big house. And yeah. It wasn't. A, it's not a big house. It's only a one bedroom house, really but I never felt claustrophobic in it. And I had just done and had published a, another book, and Thad Heckman had mentioned to me that they were wanting to write down to get their history kind of recorded. Mm-hmm. And it was all, and Bucky would say, synergy. 
and we partnered on that together. And uh, I did kind of most of the writing part, but I needed Thad to certainly walk me through the architecture and the mathematics. I was already a TV major. I was an English major. Mm-hmm. I can't do this math. <laughs> I was like, Thad, you got to dumb that down for me. Okay. And it's important that the book is really, it's not a textbook. It's yeah. very much is about... Uh, it's about how the built house was built, but it's about all the people who's lived in it and all the people who helped build it and help help restore it. So it's a very approachable book, which is what I wanted. Awesome. So that's how it happened. And the book took many years to put together, and uh, longer than I expected. And the story was much. When I first wrote it, I said, I can't, I'm not sure I can get 200 pages out of this. So the first draft is dripping with adverbs. It is so wordy. It is so, <laughs> because I'm trying to pad everything. Uh-huh. And eventually, we, it got too long. We had to cut it, you know, a little bit <laughs> so that we could uh, get it within the parameters that the publisher wanted mm-hmm. and include all the pictures that we wanted because we have some great pictures we wanted to include. So we had to cut it down. Uh, that's how it just sort of mushroomed, you know. Uh, because it is the story of building, but the story of Fuller, his time in Carbondale, the mm-hmm. story of his wife's time in, Col- in Carbondale, all of his time teaching, uh, then all the people who came into the home afterwards, like Mike Mitchell, he bought it. The homes only had three owners, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting yeah. in this day and age of short sales and house flips. Yeah. And they've had Fuller and his wife, a man named Mike Mitchell, who owned it for 28 years, and now the group that owns it now, that is the not-for-profit. That's it. It's had a lot of residents over the years because mm-hmm. after Mike Mitchell lived there, or Mickey Mitchell, as he goes by now, lived there for about two years, he turned into a rental property. And he had many renters. And at first, it was mostly uh, uh, professionals, grown-up professionals and mm-hmm. professors from university. Then as more and more the faculty moved out to Marion and Murfreesboro and whatever, students started living there. Mm-hmm. And it was fun to track all of them down. And even though they didn't have a lot of money, they all, they all were a lot of love and a lot of care. They all wanted to preserve the home. They knew how special it was, uh-huh. how lucky they were there to be living in Buckminster Fuller's home. Really? So, you know, they did what they could uh, to, it was also a cool house to live in, you know, but yeah. they also did what they could to aid in its preservation. But students don't have a lot deep pockets, you know, so, mm-hmm. but they did what they could. And everybody I talked to, uh, they were fun to track down and say, oh, yeah, I lived in Bucky's house. I loved it, you know, and, and how did they first cut, find it and how did they first hear Bucky furlough and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. That is so much to, to just engage with. Yes. Um, which is what I think this whole podcast is going to be is a lot to engage with. Episode 82 of the WTF Carbondale Podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and we tie it all back to this little old place we call home. Carbondale, Illinois, and somebody who has called this place home. I would still say that, Carrie, you call Carbondale home. Pretty, well, certainly That's Illinois, certainly <laughs> Southern Illinois. I live in Culpeper, Virginia. I work for the Library of Congress. I've been out there for over 20 years, but my roots are, I grew up in Illinois. Uh, my family is from Marion County, but I have a lot of ties, like I said, to Carbondale. Yeah. My uncle uh, was Frank Black, longtime owner of Vola Ford. His wife, Marilyn, still lives here. Just had lunch with her and her daughter, Rhonda, today. My oh. brother, Les O'Dell, all of his family. He works for the Southern. Um, his family lives here. My, and even before that, I am a multi-generational Saluki. My grandparents, both my grandmother and my grandfather graduated <laughs> from SIU. My dad, my aunt, two of my aunts all graduated from SIU. My brother and I graduated from SIU. And now his, his children have graduated from SIU. You are part of the dynasty <laughs> I building. know. I know. <laughs> and I believe that his, my brother's youngest daughter, or only daughter, actually, Sarah, uh, her degree is in 
uh, possibly in agriculture or something. So uh -huh. it's like in the same field that my brother and my dad was in. So that's, and my grandfather, that's four generations. I broke out, I went into English and radio TV. Yeah. Uh, uh, my grandmother had a teaching degree and my Aunt Marilyn had a teaching degree and my other aunt had a journalism degree. Is it kind of cool to see stuff like this that is just pop-up studio yes. work where you can take something like this space here, mm -hmm. right behind this tower, in this, what is, you know, at this point, the, the more the more stories I hear, the more I understand this place to really be historic mm -hmm. in the sense of this is where people's memories live. This is where people's history mm -hmm. like exists mm -hmm. uh, in, in this town. But to, but to see stuff like this just be, uh, capable in in this day and age versus what uh you know r&t may have been oh <laughs> during your experience yeah well i have a master's degree in what we then called telecommunications uh -huh. and it's kind of odd thinking back of that because that was really kind of pre-internet i'm yeah. dating myself and we were talking about a lot of the stuff we were talking about was coming up but it was very speculative we didn't know well, people really want to... No, people want to watch the same TV show every week, the same time. That's what they like. You know? <laughs> That's, you know, don't be silly. Now it's so different, you know, things like that. So, and people... I don't know. People can get rid of their yellow pages? I don't think so. You know, we were just very... <laughs> yeah, so... But we had no idea, so... Anyway. Uh, and here, and here yes. this is, but I mean, it all, it all goes back even further, right? Where, where you guys were just talking about what it was going to look like from then to, to now, right? Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. Tying all things yes. together. Yes. <laughs> well, he was a futurist, of course, mm -hmm. you know, at one time, Bucky, well, Bucky, I mean, has, is uh, talk about a multi hyphenate. I mean, a philosopher, writer, teacher, poet, um, at one time, his entry in Who's Who, remember the old Who's Who's directory, was the longest on record. That's how much he did and accomplished and all these different hats that he, he wore and everything like that. So, yeah, he's looking towards the future. He was looking at the future long before the rest of us were. Yeah. So, yeah, imagine what, what he'd make of today, you know, with all this, with people flying into space of their own, you know, with uh, their own do dollar and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like, he'd probably be on, you know, totally down with that so yeah you know, yeah just to see that people yeah would, would go you'd probably be a little disappointed that we don't have more dome homes in carbondale and other places but, i mean just you know. in, just in general kind of the, the surprise that that the dome home had not did not take off as as something that was a but more embraced there's, there's another dome home here in carbondale mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh um and becky never lived in that so that makes it a little less special i think but anyway <laughs> but also interestingly the geodesic dome the thing that becky possibly didn't invent but certainly helped refine mm -hmm. and publicize uh covers more square footage on the planet earth than any other work by any other architecture mm -hmm. because you've got these huge stadiums that are domes you've got all these tents that are domes you have all these centers that are domes you know and it's fun now uh -huh. um um, of course, we had the Synergy Dome here in Carbondale at one time. Mm -hmm. I think it was gone, I don't know when it was dismantled, but um, it's fun now because we do a lot of stuff on the Facebook about Bucky and the Dome Home, and all these stories are coming out. Oh, yeah, we used to go trick-or-treating to Bucky's house, and <laughs> oh, I mowed the lawn one summer, and yeah, and like, it's, it's fun, you know, because he really was right there in the community and in the town. He interacted with people. He wasn't here a lot. He traveled extensively. He had this unique deal with the university that required him only to be on campus for like two months a year. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have to be all together. So we would come in for a week, he would teach, he would do a course, not a course, do a speech, a lecture, mm -hmm. then he would fly back out someplace, Europe, England, uh, India, Asia, Japan. He loved Japan, he loved the Orient. Um, but his wife was always here. 
but then he would come back. When I first learned that Bucky taught at SIU, I figured that he was only here for maybe like uh, two years or something. Mm -hmm. No, he was here for a decade. And then after he left here, he was affiliated with SIUE for two years. Mm -hmm. So that was a pretty lengthy amount of time. That's a significant part of his his life as Buckminster Fuller, you know. And he was very prolific as an author. He published numerous books during his time at SIU. He also secured like 16 patents while he was here, uh, which is a kind of a superhuman thing. Some people only go through get one patent in their life, yeah. you know, and they're happy to have 16, yeah. you know, not just automobiles like the dominance in cars and buildings, but like rowboats and all these things used in construction and things like that. The idea of sustainability of homes that uh, work with the environment and not against the environment, I mean, this is stuff we're talking about now. That's stuff Becky was talking about in 1960, actually before, all the way back to his building of the Dymaxion house and, and things like that. How, so. how much does activity like that play into the modern SIU system from what you've observed? Is there, is there any connection that you've seen between the, the then and the now? I think Bucky's only now kind of, I think you, a genius is never fully you know, appreciated during their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I now think that with Bucky having passed on many years ago, I, I think that SIU is now only now really making the most. Mm -hmm. And I think the homecoming back the way it was is helping with that because mm -hmm. we're the actual center. This is where Bucky lived. This is where he slept. This is what slept. This is where he called home. He ate his meals. He wrote his books there. You know, at the kitchen table, I assume, or up in the study on the second floor. And I think SIU is now learning to make the most of their SI, their Bucky connection. Yeah. Probably their most famous. They've had some very wonderful alumni and famous former professors like Richard Russo, who I got to study with at one time, and Catherine Durham and people like that. Marjorie Lawrence, but I mean. Bucky's up there, and I think he's also a name that, because he was involved in so many fields, the first time I heard the name Buckminster Fuller was not in an architecture class, mm -hmm. it was not in an engineering class, it was in an art appreciation class, yeah. which is kind of interesting if you think about it, you know, that he covered all these fields, and that's why every so many people are attracted to Buckminster Fuller and his ph philosophy, and that's why that's the name that we have to get out about. Carbondale and his connection to Carbondale. Yeah. And it wasn't just, a, like I said, he was here for over 10 years. He did a lot of work while he was here. So it wasn't just he passed through, you know, casually. No, this was his legal, this is the only home he and his wife ever owned. Like owned, Bucky owned, yeah, every place else he rented. Huh. So yeah, this was the only, not only the only dome he ever lived in, the only home he, the only dome he ever lived in, but also the only home he and his wife ever owned. Being a so, multi-dimensional person yourself, yeah. did, that, did that help kind of track along with I think so. I was always fascinated by, from the minute I heard about Bucky, and, and um, I've always been sort of intrigued by the aesthetic quality of the geodesic dome and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I was I pretty much, I'm interested, yeah, I was pretty interested in him. Yeah, I don't know if I'm as, I'm not nearly as multidimensional as him, <laughs> but, you know, but I've dabbled, I dabble in a lot of things, you know, and a lot of different writings and stuff like that. So I never planned to write a Buckminster Fuller book. It just to present itself to me, and I thought, why not? And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. So, you know. what, what are what, what are some of the other pieces that you have, that you have authored leading up to this? Uh, I mean, have they my been first, a vein or? no, okay. no. Well, not really. No, my first <laughs> book I did was, was, I was, I got my, like I mentioned, I got my master's degree in radio television. Mm -hmm. My thesis was about 12 important influential women in the mm -hmm. history of television. Because when I took a wonderful history course, that was the class you would kind of start radio TV with, uh, we, we learned about people like Sarnoff and Murrow and DeForest and Mar you know, and uh, Marconi, not one mention of a woman. And I was like, well, aren't there any women? So that's how that happened. And that thesis became my first book. 
And it, I added three more chapters, three more women. Some of them you've heard of, like Betty White, Lucia Ball. Mm -hmm. Some you know their work. Yeah, Joan Gans Cooney founded the Children's Television Workshop, which created Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. uh, Joan is still very much alive, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most important people in the history of television. Frida Hennig was the first woman added to the Federal Communications Commission, and it's largely thanks to her that we have public television. Uh, I won't go into all the details. It gets complicated there. So that was my first book. My second one, probably be interesting to a lot of your listeners and watchers, because it was about a lady named Virginia Marmaduke, mm -hmm. the great Chicago newspaper woman, an SIU booster, Mm -hmm. and humanitarian. Uh, when I was at Radio TV, uh, Virginia did a, was still alive. She was living up in, in uh, Pinckneyville. She used to come to campus a lot mm -hmm. for events and things like that. She couldn't drive herself, and she needed someone to kind of lean on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us young men uh, in, the, in, these, in either journalism or radio TV, uh -huh. we actually, we need to have a get-together. We need to have a convention someday. There's a yeah. lot of us over the years. We'd go up to get her, we'd drive up, get Virginia at her apartment in Pinckneyville, where she lived like with, she didn't, she lived in a weird house that had, it wasn't, it was in a separate apartment, but there was like four apartments, and mm -hmm. it was like all these four elderly ladies, it was very golden girls, but anyway, um, <laughs> and we would bring her to SIU, and we would escort her to these events and things like that, and so I worked for the chairman, Dr. Joe Foote, of the radio mm -hmm. TV department, so they knew me. Uh, sometimes uh, Virginia's escorts were at her, she endowed a lot of scholarships, mm -hmm. and she, there would always be scholarship recipients and stuff like that. I never got a scholarship. I never worked that hard. But um, <laughs> uh, I was never that bright or something. But anyway, but they knew me in the Department of Radio TV and trusted me to go get her. And we got along like a house of fire. And so I always stayed in contact with her long after I graduated. And I came and I did an oral history with her one time, sitting in her living room in Pinckneyville. And then she developed Alzheimer's, unfortunately, which is very tragic. It's always like these, always these great, sharp, wonderful minds that get stolen from us early. It's very yeah. unfair. Um, but I got to be curious, and I just after I moved it out to DC to read some of Virginia's old newspaper articles, because we all knew her, and we knew her story, but no one ever really read anything she wrote. This was before the internet, really. This was before newspapers.com. So I would schlep down to the Library of Congress before I worked there and go through microfilm. Remember microfilm? Remember microfilm? You'd yeah, sit there. Yeah, 32 year old me totally yes. remembers microfilm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> well, they used this thing called microfilm, and it was a pain. And I would schlep down to the Library of Congress, and I would retrieve all these articles that, with her byline. And that was the second book that I did. And it was uh, called Virginia Marmaduke, A Journey in Print from Carbondale, because she was born in Carbondale to Chicago. And it traced not only articles by her, but articles mentioning her. And so that was a wonderful book to work on. And uh, that was, came out in uh, 2001, somewhere around that time, yeah, so. What does it feel like to be so close to the subject that you're creating media around? It is, it was wonderful with Virginia because I learned a lot about her. You know, they always say, don't learn too much about your heroes, yeah. you know. It did not affect me, it did not, in fact, I came out respecting her more and liking her more mm -hmm. because I uncovered so many articles about her, about her humanity. That's why when I always describe her, I say, yeah, Chicago newspaper woman, SIU booster, but humanitarian. That's, you know, she endowed so many scholarships, she helped so many causes. SIU was a pet cause. SIU was lucky to have her mm -hmm. for all those. She had a lot of energy, and she devoted it to SIU. When she retired, she retired from Chicago journalism. She moved down to Pinckneyville. She, just, she attended SIU briefly as a young woman, but she mm -hmm. never graduated from this. But that didn't stop her. She adopted it as her favorite cause, 
and they were lucky to have her, and they should appreciate her, you know, for everything that she did. And then even when she passed away, she endowed, I think it was two million some dollars uh, to the university, to the radio, TV department, and journalism schools. And I think that says something about her as well, because sometimes these people in journalism, I won't name names, but they get kind of old and kind of cranky, and, and they see a lot of stuff, you know, in their lives. They mm -hmm. see a lot of stuff, and sometimes they can get kind of bitter, but I think it says something about Virginia and her spirit that she didn't become that way. In fact, she believed it was so important that she continued to help young journalists broadcast or print or whatever um, become following her footsteps and following that field. She didn't become bitter or jaded about it. In fact, she, she laid the groundwork for many others to follow in those footsteps. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's, it's not easy to not get jaded. I know. Like, you know, now is one thing. I'm yes. sure then was a whole different Well, she was like, she, she was the first female crime reporter for a major Windy City Daily, mm -hmm. and she would go out to the you know, these horrific um, uh, crime scenes and things like that. She covered mobsters and all sorts of things. So, you know, you can become pretty jaded pretty quickly with all of that. Uh, and she didn't let it ha happen to her. I remember she was always upbeat when I knew her and, and always giving to, to SIU and, and things like that. And like I said, there was a lot of us guys who um, uh, escorted her, you know, and sometimes they were, and she also would pick the, some seniors from Pinckneyville. Like I said, we need to have a convention someday. And that was book number two. And then I wrote a book called June Cleaver Was a Feminist, mm -hmm. uh, which reevaluates the fictional portrayals of women on television. And I worked on that for many years. And what I find is that many of these women were not the, the separate wives that we thought they were. Mm -hmm. Very smart, very capable. Uh, a lot of people say, well, there was no, you know, CNN, unfortunately, just did this, this, um, broadcast this look at the sitcom and I think it's, it's very affectionate and but uh, it a little bit myopic and a little narrow they like to think oh Mary Tyler Moore was the first working woman on television mm -hmm. not by a long shot we had working women on television in like 1949 mm -hmm. I mean we had single mothers on TV in 1955 we had a first female police officer on a show called decoy in 1950 great series with Beverly Garland and it was my hope to kind of uh, uh, bring those women into the canon because it changes not only how we think about women on TV in that era and the actresses who played them, but it changes how we think about the real life women who watch them. You know what I'm saying? Because it, they had to be inspired. They saw something in them that they recognized as well. So, what draws you to women's influence in media? I don't know what what happened there. I I guess I just followed you know, followed the path. I, I first, I told you how I became interested in women behind the scenes, mm -hmm. and so I did that. Then my first job out of college, out of SIU, was at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, and they hired me to co-curate an, an exhibit. I don't think they paid too much attention to the topic of the thesis, because they wanted me to do something about the images of women on television. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And But I came in there with this sort of jaundiced view that, that I was reading in the popular press, and sadly often in the so-called scholarly press, mm -hmm. that said all women in TV in 1950 with these housewives who never really said anything beyond yes, dear, or whatever like that. When I joined the Museum of Broadcast Communications, this was again before the internet, before YouTube and all of that, where you can see so many, so I got to watch shows that I not ever seen before, like the aforementioned Decoy, this wonderful show uh, that I love with a policewoman mm -hmm. uh, as the lead character and the only character in the show. But I got to rewatch shows like Leave It to Beaver, The Donna Reed Show, I Love Lucy, and other shows that 
are not really that broadly syndicated anymore. Mm -hmm. And I realized like these these ladies are kind of smart. These ladies are getting the last. These ladies are not taking any gruff from their husbands or things like that. And it totally opened my eyes. I was like, well, what else have I missed? Mm -hmm. And so that's when I sort of broke with the common thread of it. I got very excited. And then you go back and look and see women in in 1950s and 60s television uh, in sci-fi roles and playing roles that in jobs that we do not think traditionally women, you know, like press secretaries. There was a show called Nancy with uh, Celeste Holm as a press secretary. Earlier Celeste Holm, who played the newspaper woman. Great show called Wire Service with Mercedes McCambridge as a single newspaper woman. She reminds me a little bit of my Aunt Kathy, the aforementioned. <laughs> she was a newspaper over in Chicago, uh, over in St. Louis for many, many years. Um, great shows with these strong independent women that because they have not been broad, we broadcast one-tenth as much mm -hmm. as maybe Brady Bunch or uh, June Cleaver and, and Leave it to Beaver, we forget about them. And then it becomes very easy to forget about them. But even June Cleaver, that's the name of the book is June Cleaver was a feminist. If you watch shows like that, she's a pretty savvy character. I got to interview Barbara Billingsley before her passing as well, and she was a pretty savvy character as well. How, how does the, the components that, that you study that aren't kind of part of the common conversation mm -hmm. around uh, classic media, right? How, how do you see that impacting media in today's We've got, space? yeah, it's gonna get even worse because we are putting out such an extraordinary level of product. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is just, people forget, you know, back, even back in the, remember the day, you're too young. There was days, <laughs> I grew up with like 10 channels. You uh -huh. were lucky if you got 10 channels yeah. clear, okay? Yeah. And I watched, I was lucky that my, my mother allowed me, indulged me to watch my TV watching, so that I, you know, had this base to build on mm -hmm. once I got, but it was, in some ways it's easier because we do have YouTube and Netflix and all these shows that we can almost call up with, with the snap of a finger, mm -hmm. but because there's so much product there, but we've got to go back to the product. We just can't accept what even the best journalists and even sometimes even media professors are saying about these things. Don't take their word for it if it says that June Cleaver was oppressed or the mom um, on Father Knows Best was oppressed and kowtowing to her husband. Watch the shows and you'll be very, very surprised because June Cleaver and Donna Reed have become such shorthand for a type of Stepford wife and mm -hmm. unfortunately it doesn't really apply to either of them. Go yeah. back, watch the shows. In some ways it's easier now than ever before because you can call it up on your TV mm -hmm. or your, your computer very, very easily. Um, but it was, you know, but now it's so hard because there's so much product coming out. Well, it's, it's interesting that, that you talk about how kind of the discourse misrepresents yes. the reality yes. here and, and how really we, we don't necessarily shape our thoughts around the actual media right. yes. as much as we shape our minds around the perception yes. of the media what that we says, talk about actualizing. When someone says, <laughs> um, uh, yes, you know, there's a there's a wonderful line in a Adrian Rich poem. It's like, I've come for the thing itself and not the myth. Uh -huh. So that's where you've got to go back. Go back to the original. Don't always believe, you can't always believe what you read. We know that. I mean, you know. Um, but you've got to go back Go back to the original. It's eye-opening and it's fun to see how strong these some of these women characters were, how diverse they were. And I mean diverse, not always in race. That's a different yeah. topic altogether. Uh, uh, women of color had to fight a major battle just to be represented on television, especially in non-stereotypical roles. But diverse in terms of occupations that they held, um, um, types, types of families that they were in charge of, types of families that they were maternal towards, you know. Um, 
it's, it's really eye-opening and it was really exciting. And in fact, the, June, the, the biggest criticism that I get about the June Cleaver book now is that it's too dense. There's too much in it. You know, mm. I was like, I know, but I kept finding new and wonderful series and wonderful actresses and wonderful portrayals, and I wanted to put them in there. And finally, I did realize, I said, you, just, you don't have to mention everybody. Uh-huh. You just got to make it build a case. So a way that the attorney would build the case mm-hmm. in a court. So I've done, uh, hopefully that's what I did. But there are, and I'm still pleasantly surprised when I see certain shows that I'm not familiar with, and yet still, and now working at the Library of Congress in the Motion Picture and Recorded Sound Division, I'm very lucky now that I get to see, you know, very easy access to some stuff because there's still a lot of stuff that isn't out there. That's the next thing we're fighting. Well, it's not on YouTube. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist or yeah. that it's not important. It means it's tied up with its copyright or something, you know, or those, those they're on two-inch mach- videotape, which is very arcane f- uh, format and things like that. They're needing pres- preservation and stuff like that. Case in point, there's a wonderful show. It, it was Mary Tyler Moore before Mary Tyler Moore. It was called Meet Millie. It was on in 1954. It ran for several seasons, very successful. Elena Verdurgo played a working woman, unmarried, not with a steady boyfriend, very independent. It's really, and at one time, there's believe that show is on like two or three seasons. They think only three episodes are still alive, are still around. CBS needed more room in their vault at one time. They pulled the films and destroyed them. Yes. We deal a lot with lost media at the Library of Congress. Well, you know, well, it's the, the lost media thing yeah. is going to be something that exists at all levels. Yes. Right? I mean, here, yes. Carbondale, mm-hmm. you know, talking about destroying microfilm yeah. yes. of the paper of record yeah. for 150 some odd right. years. Kara was telling me about that when she got the phone call. I'm not going to delve into too mm-hmm. much of this right now, but I mean, it's just hearing something like that thinking, I don't, I don't care if it's, if it, you know, we, there's, there's gotta, there's gotta be a, a way for uh, us to just actually like really record history. Not just uh, again, you know, do you, do you look at the books on the shelves in the library as, thoughts around you know the way that we think about the thing not the thing itself and Mm -hmm. is the reporting from the newspapers the actual thing itself and if we lose that we lose in some ways that's all we have left you know well going back to virginia marmaduke she had a a career in radio and television in uh chicago and i've only ever found at the time the book came out, I hadn't found any of that stuff. At one time, she supposedly interviewed the Queen of England on a trip to, to that she made, the Queen made to the Chicago, but we've never found the recording of that. It was only a few years ago that someone contacted me and they said, I'm about to sell this on eBay, but I saw that you wrote a book about this lady. These are some audio recordings of her show. Do you want them? I said, yes, I want them. So uh, we got them and we donated them to, I believe, do we do it? Yeah, we did donate to Morse Library here at SIU. Because they have a lot of Virginia material. What, what kind of technology does it take to be able to effectively achieve your mission of the Library of Congress in this day and age? I'm not really a techie, so I'm not the best person to say. But uh-huh. we, are, we are having a lot of problems with dead formats. Mm-hmm. I mean, and more so now than ever before. I've done a lot of work over the year with a, another name you don't know, but some of your listeners might, David Susskind. Uh-huh. David Susskind had a very, had a very, very long career uh, as a talk show host. I've worked in, I've been affiliated with his estate for many years. The first job I had in Chicago, the larger collection they had was David Susskind. So I got to know the family during the five years that I was there, all on these two inch uh, videotape. Now the home, the home VHS tapes is half inch. 
Now even that is dead, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have that. Mm -hmm. You can imagine what two inch was. Two inch are these big, heavy mm -hmm. things. I think there's only probably five or six working two inch machines left in the United States. One is at the library, a couple are at the Library of Congress. I believe there's one in Tennessee. I think one is maybe at UCLA in Hollywood. But there are thousands of two inch tapes still lying around. And, and so I've been working for many years trying to get some of these uh, David Soskind stuff. The Library of Congress has some David Soskind material as well. I joke the man will follow me to my grave, but that's fine, that's fine. I'm happy to do that, because they're really interesting. Um, David died in like 1986. Mm -hmm. So the shows that he did, maybe in the 1970s, at that time, people didn't realize how historically important they were. Yeah. But now we found this show about, oh, well, there's, there's this odd disease that seems to be affecting mainly gay men. David did a show on that. Well, we know that now is the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. things like that. He did shows about Vietnam veterans coming back and, and feeling, you know, having difficulty reassimilating and things like that. Maybe in 1980 that wasn't a big concern. Now we're a little bit more woke about that, and that's mm -hmm. more interesting now. He did a lot of stuff about, alt about gender, uh, back in his day about you know transsexuals and trans and, and and transvestites and things like that I mean he was really at the vanguard of a lot of that stuff and they're all on these two inch tapes there's also one inch videotape that is also becoming two, two inches really dead that's like the dinosaur that's uh -huh. the dinosaur of it uh, one inch tape three quarter inch videotape and then of course VHS tape that's just stuff that people used to have at the house you know but think <laughs> of all the stuff that people recorded that could be interesting that was shot on VHS tape, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, news things, and uh, at one time that was the, the 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 method of news gathering, you know, with stuff like that. So now we have digital stuff and things that are born digital, uh -huh. and there's certain born digital material, as it's called, has its own uh, issues with preservation and things like that. Mainly, a lot of it saying, people, no, if you create it, it could have value. Don't just erase it, just don't dis discard it. Mm -hmm. It could have value. We have to convey to people that the stuff that they're creating could, is important content. Maybe not today, but like I was saying with Suskind, in 20 years, it could be a really important historic snapshot. Well, and here's what, what I'm trying to navigate now is what does preservation look like mm. 20 years from now is simply having spread your content across five or seven different platforms with an assumption or a hope that one of those platforms no. will exist yeah. up till a point at which yeah. the media that you've created now requires reference in order to provide value and context mm -hmm. to the immediate now, which at our point in time is the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I concur. It's a very complicated, it's very complicated because yeah. none of us can see the future. So it's like when I was in, you know, getting my master's degree and we were talking about things like, we were talking about like content providers and stuff like that. and. You know, but, but, you know the, the end of because people have been talking about the end of the three major networks for years and years. You know, uh -huh. we were predicting that back then. I always kind of thought, no, I think people like the networks, and as long as the networks, the three major networks, are giving them something that they can't get elsewhere, and they still are. They're getting the Olympics and places like that. They're getting mm -hmm. morning news. They're getting daytime content. They're getting late night. That stuff is not happening. Um, across the board on all yeah. these other channels. In fact, for years and years and years, all these cable channels were showing nothing more, or a lot of their content was reruns mm -hmm. pulled from the networks. Mm -hmm. You know, like I mean, they were showing, USA Today still seems to thrive on SVU reruns, mm -hmm. which is fine. I love that show. But it's like, yeah, I mean, their content is coming from the networks. So, Well, I think a, a, a 
hist- I don't know if historical is the right word, but a, a institutional. Yes, yes. Uh, an institutional advantage that ABC, NBC, and CBS have over anything that started mm-hmm. in the 80s up mm-hmm. till now. Yes. Right? Is that they have always had to be the mirror as far as yes. media is concerned. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. That when media was simply a reflection with some entertainment mm-hmm. and not entertainment first with reflection kind of on the back burner through mm-hmm. news and, mm-hmm. and, and other, uh, you know, kind of introspective, kind of human-centric uh, media creation that, that they understand this. Yeah. And that they can reflect that in yeah. their modern iterations in a way that others yeah. can't, right? right. And, and, you know, now that, now that the three big networks are really in... The digital sync together yes. with Paramount Plus, yep. with Hulu, mm-hmm. and with uh, Peacock. Right, mm-hmm. it's the. I think we're about to see not so much a rapid change in landscape as much as we'll see kind of a just a just a more reparative. Like they will bring to this modern digital space some of the some of the introspection that mm-hmm. it's lacking. Right, right. Um, that that now we have we will be seeing back at ourselves through this media because they'll serve us the news in a particular way. They'll serve us, um, you know, these, these sitcoms and these, these types of, um, you know, programs that were always meant as kind of a look at yourself yeah. type of activities. Well, you know, so I was just us. talking about that, C- that sitcom thing that CNN did. Mm-hmm. That wasn't about CNN's history. That wasn't about uh, Fox's history. Mm-hmm. That wasn't about MTV's history. That was about network TV history. Yeah. Yep. That's, you know, so... That's the legacy that they can build on. I love it when shows like Meet the Press and CBS This Morning or mm-hmm. Sunday Morning make use of their history and yeah. things like that. I would love bring this full circle. CBS came and interviewed Buckminster Fuller in the Bucky Dome. Walter Cronkite came to town, sat down with Bucky in the house. So I keep saying that Jane Pauley and her crew from CBS need to come and see the Dome now. And I, can, I said, by the way, I can get you your opening shot, okay? Uh-huh. I have your opening shot. It's Walter Cronkite sitting with Bucky in the dome. So I think that'd be a wonderful full circle moment for them. <laughs> and good publicity for the dome as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and here's the deal, right? We are, it's not that these things aren't within striking distance. When we, when we finally put together the, the care package to send to Jeff Bridges, right? Mm-hmm. It took about, uh, I don't know, three, four months to get a reply from yeah. Uh, his uh, assistant Becky Pedretti. Yes, uh, and she was just like, "Listen, you know." And this was by this time, pandemic had rolled around. Yes, right? mm-hmm. um, Jeff's got his, uh, you know, his additional health concerns. So it's it, you know, very right. kind and right. soft provision. But especially after our conversation, Carrie, like I'm going to email Becky back and like send yeah. her, "Hey, you know, here's just some really cool things." Right, right, and like what 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 would be cooler than you know. CBS coming in and it was it was Walter Cronkite with it was CBS Walter Cronkite CBS just double, just checking. Um, they interviewed him for uh, a documentary about the cities of the future but they had so much good footage it seems they mm-hmm. later incorporated that into some other stuff that they broadcast and even into a film that was released to schools mm-hmm. wow yeah <laughs> and we don't we don't always think about some of those productions yes that, you know, the, what we do at the Library of Congress we have we collect a lot of that sort of uh, industrial films and films that were made for use in churches and schools stuff like that I work mainly at the library with something called the National Film Registry mm-hmm. which is 25 films named every year picked handpicked or picked by the Librarian of Congress yeah 
And yes, there's a big blockbusters like Titanic and Frankenstein and Gone with the Wind and Castle but it's also those other films that are, again, we're very reflective of our nation mm -hmm. and very historically important, things like Duck and Cover. A couple of years ago, they added this film that you and I ne never saw, but it was called The Story of Menstruation. And it was shown for many, it was produced by the Walt Disney Company. It was shown for showing in schools to young girls. All the boys were sent off to play dodgeball mm -hmm. and all the girls were pulled in and every woman at the Library of Congress in our office like, oh yeah, we watched that. Wow. And you know, we watched all sorts of generations. They made use of it forever and ever and ever. And it was estimated that by the end, uh, by the time it was pulled out of circulation, it had been seen by over 100 million women. That's Wild. Yes, you can find it on YouTube now, so you can go hunting for it. It's an animated work, uh, but they uh, Disney produced it, yeah. and it's put. It's not graphic or anything like that. It's very, um, but it's that's it. That was added a few years ago, and then we'd love to art, add artistic avant-garde films. And you look at them and you think, boy, this is kind of strange. But then, and you think, boy, this is strange. And then you find out this was made in like 1927. And you're like, wow. Mm -hmm. And then you look deeper and you say, I see David Lynch in that. I see Quentin Tarantino in that. Mm -hmm. You know, I see where that seed began, yeah. that imagery began, and where it went to. Well, does it, does it feel like almost having uh, the, the position of the giver, <laughs> right, in, in the role that you have? That it is, because <laughs> the idea is to focus attention by the nation on film preservation, because, again, so many films, I'm doing some work right now on an ABC series that was on in the 1970s. It was called the ABC Mystery, I'm sorry, Wide World of Mystery. It was mm -hmm. a late night alternative that ABC did um, to Johnny Carson. And it was all these original films that they produced with murder, mayhem, ghosts, things like that. Some are on YouTube. They produced 36 of them, I believe, maybe more than that. And a lot of those masters we believe to be lost. That's remarkable for 19 network television in 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, they were probably shot on videotape. The videotapes may have been wiped and recycled. We're used to a lot of si silent films being lost, you know, but films from the 1970s being lost. Mm -hmm. So we're getting ready to do a blog post about that at the library. We're going to list all these films and say, do you have this? Did you happen to record this off air? And most of them would have aired before home video really caught on. But there may be a few geeks out there who yeah. had the home devices or somehow got a copy and we want to unearth them so that they are not gone forever do you feel like you get enough media attention from from larger oh yeah uh you know entities well, like helping you kind of give them i them? always need a lot of attention uh -huh. but that's <laughs> that being the truth <laughs> but we do the Thanks. national film registry every uh -huh. year that comes out in usually december uh -huh. and then we do the thing i work on mostly is the national recording registry that's 25 recordings mm -hmm. and last year and we've added everything from the beatles to operas uh, Leotine Price, country music, um, radio broadcasts, all sorts of stuff. Even um, a bird call or a, a sound of a bird from a bird that may or may not be extinct. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. But anyway, we release that usually April, and we get wonderful news coverage on that. We've even been a, cop, a, a, a category on Jeopardy. You That's, can't ask for that. So, okay, so let's talk about Jeopardy right now, because uh -huh, you don't uh, like Madame Odia. Oh, I, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, see, I'm, I have. I'm, pro I'm, I'm probably okay. On, uh, I'm jealous of his smarts no. <laughs> and his money. I will admit that, but I like a little more gameplay. I yeah. don't, you know. And my God bless him, you know. And he just if he walks wants, in and clears out the board. He just clears out the board. I don't think it's as much fun as when everyone gets to be in there and, and play. I, you yeah. know, I'm sure he's a very nice guy. He yeah. seems like a nice guy. I don't think he's like. 
But yeah, you saw that on my Facebook, didn't you? I did. I, like, I did. Oh, I, I, like I couldn't know. I've been thinking about this whole time, and he just keeps winning. And we is just he still like, winning? I haven't seen it this week uh, at yeah, all because yeah, I'm traveling. I, I, yeah, but. I haven't watched t- today, but he's still. Yeah, he's still. I mean, he's now like sixth most winningest all time. Yeah. The craziest thing, and this is yes. something that will, I think, end up in your guys' hands yes. at the Library yes. of Congress, is that he has been a champion across four coasts, four different hosts. Yes. And that is that's legitimately a record that will that never be. be broken. Probably, yes. Uh, you know, that's that Probably. is something yeah. absolutely miraculous. I think he seems like a nice guy. I think he's got a nice personality. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I'm probably just jealous. I'm just and if he and, and I take back everything. If he wants to make a donation to the Bucky Dome, I take everything back. <laughs> I'm happy for the, we'll take his money. But yeah, I just I just you know, I I just find it something very calculated. He always goes for, and he's playing. Well, he's playing what's his name's game. We remember the guy that won a couple of years ago and dominated. He knows. Go for the big category, yeah, yeah. go for the big mounts, yep. bet it all if yep. you can, get a head start, and just leave the other people in the dust. I yep. admire that good gameplay, but it's, it's not as, as much fun to watch, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's just going through 200, yeah. 400. But, it's not, a, but you gotta, it's not as much fun to watch when the yeah. other people have a chance, you know. But, I do, but, but he keeps winning, and he's got the smarts. Yeah. And some of the, those answers he comes out, I'm like, who knows that? Yeah, what? And how? How? I mean, it's just, I mean, it's clearly one of those things where this has just been bred yes. into him. So, yeah. You know, professors for, for parents and just like a, a, a being pointed yeah. at, you know, being able to devour any sort of information that's put in front of mm-hmm. you. Right, it's just uh, it's cool, but yeah, no. So that's 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 an awesome I, tie together. I love that. Yeah, I really love we that. have been a category on the on Jeopardy several times. I uh-huh. work with the producer there; she's wonderful. Uh, yes, she has gotten emails from me about which guest host I like the most. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, I, I say, I'm sure, Michelle, I'm sure you're desperate to know what I think, and she's very you know funny about it, things like that. Uh-huh. I said, no, I will not be auditioning because I cannot do. The, I actually attended a tape. Ben Alex was alive. He, they did some in D.C. Uh-huh. You know, um, and. And I attended. It was great fun. And I was like, I cannot do these pronunciations. I could never do those pronunciations like him. Yeah. I'd have like, no, no. I'd be like, we got to skip this one, guys. I can't. <laughs> not for me. Not for not me. Not for me. Uh-uh. <laughs> those, those, uh-uh. I took a year of Spanish in, in SIU. I had to get it for my English degree. Uh-huh. And it was all crammed in one summer. And when you learn it that fast, you forget it that fast. I can't know. I don't remember any of it now. <laughs> but you still have a pretty sharp memory. I mean, we're sitting here, we're talking through things. Yeah. Arguably that you've had to process multiple times, right? Hearing it first, writing it down, editing it, reviewing it, and mm-hmm. then regurgitating it over yeah. and over again to audiences who are yeah. interested in the media you've produced. Yeah. That makes sense as to why that would be. But we, I'm sure that affects your entire bandwidth of understanding. Right, right. Well, we hope, we really, when the book was, com- when the Bucky book was coming out, we put together a whole, I put together a whole PowerPoint. We're hoping to go around and do it, then COVID hit, you know? Mm-hmm. But then with the uh, June Cleaver book, I've done a presentation several times, and it's great fun because I first show a comp reel a videotape about 30 minutes long of a lot of clips from old TV shows. Some people that's some that they've seen, some that they've never seen. And it's very eye-opening because, you know, I curated that in a way to see. You weren't used to seeing women like this, were mm-hmm. you? You know, we're not supposed to. And you see that the audiences of both sexes and various generations going, oh, I didn't know women like that talk to their husbands on TV in 1950. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. As though they show that, and then I get up and do a, a you know, PowerPoint things. I've done that many times, and they've allowed me even to do it at the Library of Congress one time. It was great fun, and then do Q and A at the from the from the uh, audience. That's cool. Yeah. Well, mm. you were you were telling me before the podcast, yes, um, about Buckminster Fuller actually being in this building. 
Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, that was one of the fun things that we found. There's very little written about, you know, what how Bucky spent his time in his days here at SIU, day mm-hmm. and out. Like he wasn't here a lot. Now, and his wife was here, and we also have to remember what Carbondale was like at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a much smaller town. The student population was much smaller. Mm-hmm. There, the mall was not there. Nothing out that side of town. Yeah. The other side of town would have ended about at Murdale, you know. Mm-hmm. It was very, Vogler Ford, my uncle owned. I remember when he was downtown in the area, not mm-hmm. out on the, yeah. uh, you know, towards Marion and things like that. I, I love that those buildings are still standing like that. Yes, they, that's great. We used to visit my uncle Frank there at that, when the dealership was there or uh-huh. when we were little. But yeah, so there's a story we found somehow. Uh, maybe I got to interview a lot of people that knew Bucky, all of Bucky's neighbors, mm-hmm. but uh, kids that used to like trick or treat and mow his yard and stuff like that. <laughs> and tri- the big, the Fullers were always the house to go to on Halloween uh-huh. because Ann Fuller gave away the full size candy bars. <laughs> not that I love that when they told me that that was the house every kid made a beeline for uh-huh. on Halloween, not the little ones, the big size. Uh-huh. And so I thought, ah, that's got to go in the book. But yes, Bucky, uh, there's a story of him meeting somebody here. And he and his wife were coming to see when the varsity was a movie theater, yeah. and they were seeing a Roman Polanski film. I for, it's something, some sort of knife in water or something. I forgot mm-hmm. the name of the film, mm-hmm. uh, but probably with subtitles. So you know, kind of an artsy film that they was, was playing in Carbondale, and there was that. Yes, so he visited the varsity when he was here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just you know wild to think of, uh, you know, people who have set foot in this building yes. throughout the years. Mm-hmm. I, I just I'm. I'm Always and forever, and the yes. more of these conversations that happen. I don't think here. it was a movie theater when I was here. It was a video store when yeah, I was here. Yeah, I remember yeah. that, but I don't think it was a movie theater. But I had a membership to the video store. Well, the um, I think, and I, and I don't know the history on this place mm-hmm. really all that well. Arguably, we, that's something I should get better at. But the, uh, from what I understand, it was 1940 to 2003. Okay. When the movie spaces that are over here functioned, and maybe the storefront here was different, mm-hmm. and they still had the. Um, you know the rooms down the hallway as as theaters, but I, I don't know for sure. I'd have to ask somebody, <laughs> the people that have worked here. It's, yes, it's cool, yes. like talking to folks that, mm-hmm. that have been like, oh, well, I managed there from seventy yes, to seventy. That's like the bucket the People, these people and, come out of the woodwork you know, yeah. in a way, and it's great. And I, I post on Facebook all the time. If you've got a story about the dome, yeah, you know, let us know. And then of course it was a rental property for me. A lot of people came parties there and things like that. So um, something probably you know pretty. Energetic parties, let's say, you know, so <laughs> that's fun. So you do a really good job of using all of the different Carbondale centric Facebook groups to <laughs> generate interest and activity. And I mean, what, what's kind of the coolest outreach that you've had back to you from participation in those groups? Like people that have been like, oh, I've got a story for you. Oh my and- gosh. Um, we used it to track down a lot of the old renters, which uh-huh. is great. It's amazing what's out on the internet. I mean, yeah. what sort of public and Mickey Mitchell, Mike Mitchell has been fantastic. I, when I started the book, you know, I was so I said, what if I can't track down the second owner of the dome? Or if I can't, what if he's not in I mean, do you want yeah. to talk about some house you don't own anymore? You know? <laughs> I was like, what if he does not in? But he was so helpful, not only for the book, I'll get to your credit in a minute, but, yeah. Yeah, but I'll was. get back to his but also with the restoration, because he lived there. The Fullers are passed away. The great, their daughter Legwa never hardly visited mm-hmm. the Fullers when they lived. She had her own life in California. The grandkids only visited a couple times. So really to get back to how the home was when the Fullers lived there, we had to go back to Mike Mitchell mm-hmm. and what pictures he 
had what memories he had, and the very first renter that Mike had was a woman named Michelle Bach, who studied dance here at SIU, mm -hmm. and is now just retired, and she lives out on the East Coast, and she's been fantastic, because she said, well, when I moved in, this is what the drawer looked like, and this is what the shower was, and blah, 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 so that stuff we've all kind of pieced together, thankfully, but yeah, I've joined all the big Facebook groups devoted to futurism, mid-century modern, uh -huh. I've got a big uh, 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 education in that, because they were good friends with the Eanes, and so, and their home is just a, I posted a picture, and I said, you know, this, this house was a mid-century marvel, and then, then someone's supposed to say, it still is, you know, and, <laughs> and I belong to all the geodesic groups, uh -huh. and round, there's a, there used to be a group devoted to round houses, so uh -huh. we, we qualify all the Carbonero groups and all the SIU groups and everybody. Like I said, a lot of stories are coming out. I'm trying to think that's people who I've, uh, probably a gentleman that had seen, it may have been your broadcast, somebody, and they said they'd heard it, and they said, oh yeah, I lived there, and he was not on our radar at all. He was, we did not find any, most of it we found some sort of property record, mm -hmm. sometimes even like a ticket from the city, and that is what sourced us back to tracking uh -huh. these people down. And they must have thought it was bizarre when I was calling them. I was mm -hmm. like, did you used to live in Carbondale? I'm like, yes. Did you, used to did you ever live in the Bucky Dome? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, and then they get very excited. Yeah. yeah, we lived at the Bucky Dome, you know, and things like that. But the gentleman reached out to us, and at first we thought he was kind of pulling our leg. And, but his facts were just too solid. I said, you can't know that stuff if you didn't live there. Yeah. So he, was, he helped continue the story. He was one of the last people who actually called it, got to call the dome home. Mm -hmm. you know? Only a handful of people have been able to call it home, and he was one of them. And that was because of the media outreach that we did. Yeah. Wow. The, um, the, the uh, where, where am I going with this, <laughs> with this question? It, it had to do with the archivist function of of what you do but i lost mm -hmm. kind of the lead into mm -hmm. uh that question i said just have been, to... been starstruck by this whole conversation <laughs> it really i'm is very lucky something. i've got to meet some really exceptional and and be friends with wonderful people and you know and still am so i'm i'm sorry to get me bucky but i i i got to know allegra his late daughter who just passed away wonderful yeah. benefactor mickey mitchell uh fascinating man uh knew Bucky, was a big f friend of Bucky's, um, moved out to California, was a musician for many years, helped uh, manage, it wasn't the Whiskey A Go-Go, it was some sort of very large, well-known club out there. He worked with Lou Adler managing this, I'd be like, Mickey, you need to write your book. Mm -hmm. You need to write your book about your life because you've got some stories to tell. We very much want to bring him back to, um, to, because he did so much to help the house. Him, Bill Perk, who you probably know, mm -hmm. have done so much. To, that house would not be standing without those gentlemen. So we really want to bring Mickey back sometime and thank him and have him see the home as it is now, because he really does. It wouldn't have been saved. He made a promise to Bucky that he would take care of the house, and he did. Yeah, yeah. and it's and it's there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so cool. He could have so been cool. bulldozed a long time ago for someone who just won the lot. You know, it's, yeah. a good, it's a good lot. It's a nice location, you know. So, But luckily, we had that little jewel now in Carbondale. So. I'm hoping the same thing happens with the Lost Cross House. <laughs> <laughs> were you, uh, were you uh, the, uh, the old punk house on Elm Street? I want to say it started in like the early 80s. So 83, 85-ish. Um, it, it was just a, like a punk show house. Like they would have uh, oh. bands and stuff in the basement. What was the name of it? Do what? What was the name of it? Uh, the Lost Cross. 
No, oh. I don't know. See, I studied in school. That uh -huh. was like the... Oh, I, no, Carrie, I was, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing here? I know. That was like the bad... Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Well, now, now I feel like uh, I'm gonna, you're going you're gonna to stumble into another Carbondale project uh -oh. on accident, Carrie. Uh. <laughs> no, it's cool. Someday I, mean, I got to do a project that's like actually closer to where I live because yeah. it's exhausting, but, um, oh, but sure. that's okay. But, <laughs> you know, this is the time to do it. You can do this stuff now. You can do Zoom calls and, and, and working at the Library of Congress at Access to so much stuff that if I was in Carbondale, I wouldn't have access yeah. to. So uh, no, just, I didn't know the. I don't know that one. Yeah. Well, I'll send you, I've got I've got uh, episode fifty. Patrick Hogan. Okay. Uh, he he was a good. He's good. He's a good introduction to the to the house. That I'll send you something. And then okay. It's kind of cool. Uh, um, uh, Adam Fletcher, who is a um, uh, he's uh, Adam's got to be probably in his like late thirties, mid forties. The um, uh, plays a band called the Copyrights. He really like works to document. The Lost Cross House and its ah because I mean it's the it's the it's the oldest contiguously oh. functioning punk house venue in the country. Wow! So there's like it's it's That's kind of this cool, storied though. place, right? That's cool. And it's three blocks down from the dome home. Yes, right. Wow! Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow! Yeah. No, I, I will. That. I will definitely. This is something that, at the very least, from a distance, you can look at and just admire and go, oh, cool. You know, Virginia Marmaduke was born here in Carbonate at the house. She was born in is still standing. Wow. I don't know who lives there, but it's still standing. She drove me by at one time. Where, uh, where, where, it is on. It is on Popular, I think. Okay. It's not that, it's kind of down that vicinity. So, yeah, I don't remember the exact, uh, but it's still standing. Well, so. I, I would, I would imagine it may, it may be the really, was it like a really beautiful turreted house? Like it a, may have been. Yes. Okay. Her family, her father worked for the railroad. He made a nice living. Okay. And so, yeah. No, mm -hmm. I, I think that house may be getting some level of restoration. Good. But so we'll, I'll have to like drive well, over down cool Poplar story. and I was just, just trying to figure it out. Yeah. I was just telling someone today that, you know, well, it's like, there's this wonderful quote. I've got the poets like, you know, say it, the world is made of stories, not of atoms, yeah. you know, and it's so true. <laughs> and I had such a great time uh, being a family. My step grandmother was the first woman from Marion County uh -huh. to join the wax. And so right, I, you're gonna have to tell me what the, the wax was doing world war two with the women's army corps. Okay. It was a way of bringing women into the armed services uh -huh. so that bring men and then they would do certain jobs so that men could be more on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And so this was this whole, very important to the feminist history of this country and things like that. And this was before she married my grandfather. She died when I was two, so I have no memories of her, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But my cousin had saved all of her letters home, all of her notebooks. She had never stepped foot out of this little county in southern Illinois. And then suddenly she finds herself in, on a ship going to northern Africa, mm -hmm. being stationed in Italy, and things like that. This incredible life story, and I'm so sad that I never got to meet her, but or know her at all, because like I said, she died when I too. I have no memories of her. But uh, my cousin was uh, saved all this documentation and I, and of, of her, so I was able to write some something about her a few years ago, which brought me brought me great pleasure, you know. So well, ex yeah. exploring just a little bit that question I asked earlier, you know, kind of what inspires yeah. the you know, the, yeah. the, the following of, of women in media and their influence yeah. here, but it sounds like you've, yeah. got, you've had I got, influential women in your oh, life. Oh, absolutely. That, oh, my God, yes. media. My grandmother on my mother's, on my father's side, uh -huh. SIU grad, uh, was a beloved English teacher. It's funny that my, my brother and I now, you know, are writers. My, my uh, aunt was a journalist. Um, she was a beloved English teacher at Kimmundy Alma High for many, many years. Mm -hmm. I still, now they're getting old, but they still come to me and say, <laughs> your grandmother put a love of literature and reading into me that I will never forget. Your grandmother was my English teacher and 
she has so many wonderful letters that students sent to her and thanks and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's how it, yeah. I mean, when you've got women like that in your life, it's yeah. pretty interesting, so. Huh, mm -hmm. that really does, that really does kind of like tie it Yeah, I think so, I think so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I'm, Carrie, I, I, you know, one, one of the things that I really do with this podcast yeah. is I, I work to have limited expectations or like no expectations, but a lot of conversation and a lot of mm -hmm. exploration, mm -hmm. right? So I, I, I work this balance of not wanting to know too much about the people mm -hmm. before I sit down mm -hmm. with them and I get to have these genuine responses myself mm -hmm. to folks mm -hmm. and to have that genuine interaction and to have had just enough interaction with you and just enough of a lead in with the Buckminster Fuller mm -hmm activity and the dome home activity to be able to explore all of these other things mm -hmm. has just made this conversation a treat it's been fun <laughs> and i gotta tell you about the book i'm working on now yeah um it's a little north of here and this is just something i stumbled on as well it's a very complicated story but in 19 around 1960 there's a man up in uh lewisville illinois if mm -hmm. you know that town just south of effingham not too far from Kim Mundy, where my parents mm -hmm. retired to, and my mother was born in Kim Mundy, and they retired when they moved back down there. Um, he founded, in around 1959-60, his own religious colony. Some might call it a cult. Uh, he, yes. He even went so far as to build his own kind of community. He built a replica of the Mount Vernon House, only 20% bigger. That is still standing in Louisville. I was working on the Bucky Dome book. I'd heard about this house over in Louisville. I thought, would well, that be an interesting little companion thing? You know, uh -huh. I'm going to write this. You know, I'm like, now another little architectural interesting thing. Yeah. And then I began exploring the story. And then I discovered the man who built this house, Johnny Bob Harrell, was still alive. I went over and interviewed him. I've interviewed him many times. He just passed away at the age of 99 earlier this year. It's a fascinating story. Fascinating story. I will have to come back and talk to you about that. Well, I, well one of the things that, that and then we'll, we'll outro on this, I think yes. this is a really good kind of punctuation uh, to our conversation here, is, is what writing around people and structures kind of kind of means to you yeah. right what you know we we you know it was exploring the the one component the interest in 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 women's influence in media but for mm. you it seems like you just find these connections yeah. between structures and the individuals mm. that create them and have mm. them so that's an interesting perspective this was just some i'm just in, insatiably curious you know mm -hmm. and I, I thought i was just gonna write about a house and then i went and met johnny bob and he'd be and i came to him pretty much under the pretext that I said, I'm just going to talk about that. If he wants to talk about other stuff, I'm down with it. Yeah. And, and we barely sat down on his front porch, and he began telling me about all this other stuff because he got in trouble with the government. He went to jail for a time. Um, he had this compound. Uh, people stormed it. The government stormed it at one time because he was harboring a deserter. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting story. Um, and he started talking about it, and suddenly I went down in that direction. Just like one day I... Took a tour of the Bucky Dome. I stuck with that, and then I followed that direction. So. <laughs> and uh, we hope you've enjoyed following us along <laughs> our direction for this conversation for the 82nd episode of the WCF Carbondale podcast. My guest, Carrie Odell. Have a good one, folks. Whatever that one may be. Hmm.